Are you ready for a secret? Yes. The most important person in the story I'm going to read to you today is not who you think it is. That's the secret. And yes, I have a plan about the woman at the well story and why we're doing that again and again, because today we have another well story. And when, they, when, when Jesus met the woman at the well, all these stories compile into this one. There's other women at the well stories in the Bible too. Moses also meets his wife at a well. And so it's not just a couple of them, it's one after the other, over and over and over. The difference here is, and I want to make sure that we hear this out of John 4, is that the well is not always easy to get water out of. Okay? In the, in the case of this well where Jesus and the Samaritan woman is, it's deep, and unless you have something to get the water out, you don't get the water out. This well was also given by Jacob, part of our story today, to his son Joseph, not really part of our story today. But it has this, this idea of spouse and, and the middle of the day and why you're there and how the, how the world is. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the backstory of maybe the woman today and how she fits in more so than Jesus. So let's go to Genesis 29. You know, it wasn't so long ago to me that we were on page one of our text, of our Bible, and now we've made it all the way to page, still finding it, 45. My bookmark was moved. I probably just did that. And you probably even watched me. So here we go. I need to tell you this um, just to make sure that there's a couple of things we have to talk about. But one of the things that happens in the Bible and in, and in, the, new, in the Genesis stories, you start to see brothers not always getting along. Yes? Yes. And, I mean, we, we almost from the very beginning, the first set of brothers don't get along, and that ends in tragedy. Um, the Ishmael-Isaac story doesn't end particularly well for the brother relationship, although they were together at the funeral, which is something not every family finds. Jacob and Esau, now we're going to go a little bit, just in case you thought, ladies, that boys and siblings were the only ones that didn't get along or had troubles. We're going to start into the Rachel-Leah story today. And I just need you to know that sisters are not free from this sort of thing. You might have already known that. My own sister used to take five steps before she threw the, the punch <laughs> until the first year of wrestling. And then it stopped. <laughs> Just saying that's how that goes. So here we are. This is Jacob on the lamb. 
right? Running on the lamb. He's running from Esau. He's going to his uncle. He's uh, met God along the road. And the very first time he meets God, he says, this is God's house, but he's still on the lamb. And so he says, Jacob hurried on, finally arriving in the land in the east. And he saw a well in the distance and flocks were there, three flocks of sheep. Goats lay in the open field beside it, waiting to be watered. But a heavy stone covered the mouth of the well. And it was the custom there to wait for all the flocks to arrive before removing the stone and watering the animals. It was the custom in Jesus and the woman at the well that they would not actually be out there in the middle of the day. Right? It's the hot part of the day. And for those of you who've been to Israel, the hot part of the day actually is hot. Yes? So I'm seeing big big yeses over here with the people. 115? 120? Yeah. So we, we think 100's hot. Those extra 15 degrees sort of pile on. It's hot. <laughs> right. But a heavy stone covered it. Jacob went over to the shepherds and asked, Where are you from, my friends? We're from Haran. They answered, do you know a man there named Laban, the grandson of Nahor, they, he asked? Yes, we do. Is he well? Yes, he's very well, they answered. And look, here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the flock now. Jacob said, look, it's still broad daylight, too early to round up the animals. Why don't you water the sheep and goats so they can go back to the pasture, he said. We can't water the animals until all the flocks have arrived. Then the shepherds will move the stone from the mouth of the well, and we will water the sheep and goats then. Jacob was still talking to them when Rachel arrived with her father's flock, and she was a shepherd, for she was a shepherd, and because Rachel was his cousin, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, just in case you didn't understand cousins. That's what that's there for. And because the sheep and the goats belonged to his uncle Laban, Jacob went over to the well and moved the stone from the mouth and watered his uncle's flock. Then Jacob kissed Rachel. I expect that uh, is a traditional greeting, not, not, not what we would have said as swapping spit to our daughter. And he wept aloud. He exclaimed, he explained to Rachel that he was her cousin on her father's side, the son of, of Aunt Rebecca. So Rachel quickly ran to her father. Do you see this at the well? There's people running back to their other people, the woman at the well. There's parts of the story that are very parallel. And as soon as Laban heard that this was his nephew Jacob had arrived, he ran out to meet him, embraced him, and kissed him. I expect that's the same sort of greeting. And brought him home. When Jacob had told the story, told the story, Jacob explained, "You really are my own flesh and blood." I just need to pause for a second. When Jacob explains that he has stolen his brother's birthright and running for his life, his uncle says, "Wow, you're certainly a member of this family." <laughs> now, there's also this other side of this. Um, he could look like his mother and therefore look like his uncle and be a member of the family their way. I, we could be reading in. After Jacob had stayed with Laban for about a month, Laban said, you shouldn't work for me without pay just because we are relatives. 
tell me how much should your wages be? And so the negotiation between the two of them starts. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah. The younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes is this translation. I need to uh, remind you that when we got to the beginning of the Jacob Esau story, it said Esau was a skilled hunter. Do you remember me saying this? That Jacob, and the word actually means blameless man, and I said to you, because all the translations don't believe that, they started to use plain and other words like that, right? And so when you see other translations and it says other words, so uh, Andrew, do you have your NRS with you today? No, you don't. Because it's, it usually says something about she has weak eyes. Whatever that means. In this case, she has no sparkle. The NIV probably has something else. It's all this. What this means is the word doesn't make any sense. In the same way that Tam or righteous didn't make any sense for Jacob, right? Esau's a hunter, but Jacob's blameless. Does that mean hunting's bad? No, it doesn't actually. It means careful. There's a word here that identifies somebody as something they're not. So we have a parallel here. Rachel, um, but Leah had no sparkle, but Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. That is a culturalization of that language. When Joseph is born, he's actually described with the exact same word as Rachel. He is beautiful to behold. Some of the Hebrew writers in the past say things like Jacob or Joseph had uh, his body, he just smelled so good. I'm not making this up. That when he was being taken by the slave traders, his smell was so good that it overpowered the spices they were taking. To which Karen said, now he's a dude, he smells bad. <laughs> right? That's not exactly how you said that. His sweat stinks just like everybody else's. <laughs> right. But Rachel, so the word, uh, Leah, so the word here that, that Leah has is, is rahat, rahat. And it's used one other place to mean fragile in the Bible. Leah's not going to end up being fragile. She's going to have seven kids in a battle of having kids if we go through this. Do you know Do you know how this battle goes? Do you know this story? So if I just say this, that, that Jacob wants Rachel. Yes? And gets Leah. The most important person in this story is Leah, though. Not Rachel. Now you might say, wait, wait, wait. The whole back half of Genesis is about Rachel's kid. No, it's not. Joseph is the story background for Leah's son, Judah. Why do I say that? 
The line, this book is about the line of Messiah, though, isn't it? Joseph isn't in the line of Messiah. Judah is. And Judah is the fourth son of Leah. What does it feel like to not really even be named as a main character in the whole story? Do you see why I'm saying that she's the most important? If Judah is the, is the tribe the Messiah comes from, if Judah is the patriarch of the line of Messiah and not Joseph, then this story that we've been learning about how all these miraculous births that occur to get the Messiah there, what happens is we could begin to think that in order to be a massive, important person in the line of Messiah, we should probably have a miraculous birth. But the fact of the matter is that most births in the line of Messiah are not miraculous. They're just births. Although you could say that having a baby is miraculous. Okay, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying that Leah's children weren't conceived because there was barrenness and then but if we begin to hear the story and that God begins to say I know I'm setting this story up for you one way and you might think that everybody special is going to have this special birth and then you might begin to think that if you didn't have a special birth narrative then maybe you weren't important And I need to tell you right now that this story is about somebody who's sort of also mentioned. They're, they're in the appendices, not in the main story. Leah is the matriarch of the line of Messiah, not Rachel. And I don't know how else to say that to you, but except for this one thing. Well, maybe there's five other ways that I can say this. But, but what goes on here is that God begins to tell you a story and you begin to expect it to go a certain way. And then he's going to say, yeah, except for when it doesn't. And this is one of those ways. So Rachel gets a husband at the well. Yes? That's the story. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah and the younger one was Rachel and there was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Or in other words, she didn't catch Jacob's attention. For all of you who've always felt like maybe you didn't get the attention you deserved, Leah is the poster child for this, okay? Leah is the big deal. She's the real deal. She's the mother of the line of Messiah in this story. Since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, for my wife. And Laban agreed. I'd rather give her to you than anyone else. Stay and work for me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. 
Finally, the time came for him to marry her, and I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared the wedding feast. But that night it was dark, and Laban took Leah to Jacob, and he slept with her. How did Jacob get into the line of Messiah? In truth, he lied and cheated and stole his way in. Yeah? But if you read that story, the parents are really the problem, and Esau and Jacob are kind of pawns in the story, yes? Now we get down to the next level. How did, how did Leah get into the line of Messiah. Subterfuge and darkness, right? The same darkness that allowed Jacob to fool his dad and say, no, I'm Esau, because eyesight works this way, and it's going to become a theme. How did we get into the line of Messiah? Well, we were kind of crazy, sort of not very great people that Maybe we weren't noticed in the storyline, and maybe we didn't think we had a role in the story, but God did. And he uses whatever happens in the story to bring us into the line. So I have a secret to tell you. The most important person in the story is not at the well. The most important person in this line of Messiah thing is always the person God's working with. Yes? And if God's working with you, maybe you don't even feel like you're honored at the well. Maybe you didn't feel like you got a special visitation for your birth story. But you did. God notices those that don't catch the world's eye. Do you, do you understand why I'm saying that? Leah gets noticed by God, and how does she get into the line? Laban's subterfuge. Now, there's more to this story, and we'll be covering this as the thing, but I want to make sure that you understand the context of drawing water at the well and how difficult it is, is the story begins to tell you a story, so that the Bible begins to tell you a story so that you can understand what's coming, and then it starts to undercut that story, so you have to really pay attention. And if you think this story is about Rachel and Jacob, you're correct, it is, they're the main players at this stage. But if you start to ignore them, ignore the other players on the stage or in the story, you will miss the point is that God doesn't only pay attention to the star and the co-star. God pays attention to all the little nooks and crannies of the story and everybody in it. And just because you think you understand how the story goes, you might get to the spot where you think, well, the firstborn son should be the one. And of course, 
later on, Reuben will take a story, right? But Reuben's not even the first. He doesn't get to be part of the story. And you think, well, maybe the younger son will, Simeon. No. Well, what about Levi? He's the third son. No. What about Judah? Well, when we get to Judah, boy, you're going to see that if you thought Jacob was a piece of work, <laughs> Judah's a piece of work. And I don't know how else to say that, but as soon as Judah comes on the stage, then Rachel starts to say, I'm not having any kids. Uh, maybe my, my handmaid could have kids for me. Have we heard this story before? Did that work for Sarah very well? No, same idea, same result. Yeah, the definition of insanity, right? We're going to keep doing this and get different results. No, it's the same thing. But anyway, Bilhah, her maid, has Dan and Naphtali. And of course, Leah, in this competition of babies, says, I'm not having any babies anymore. Maybe Zilpah can have Gad and Asher for me. And, then, and every kid is noticed, right? <coughs> sort of. And then Leah has more kids. Issachar, Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah. And then Joseph is born, and Jacob goes, ooh, the promised one. But he's not. Judah. We're going to pay attention to Judah in the story. But before then, we need to talk about how siblings and relationships go wrong and awry, and how God can work in the midst of the problem that we think is, is that everybody, once they come to Christ, has all this spick and span life. And that the line of Messiah is so pretty and excellent. And it has all these miraculous birth stories. No, not really. No, it has some. But a miraculous birth story is not the ticket into the line of Messiah. Faith in God and being willing to be adjusted is how you get in to the line of Messiah. And Genesis is about that. And I'm going to let you just stew on that until next week. <laughs> Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for today. As you bring us in to the line of Messiah, help us not feel unnoticed. Help us not think that you only work in the big things of our life. Help us not think that, that unless it's miraculous, unless it's big, you don't pay any attention to it. Lord, we need you in every aspect of our lives, and you're paying attention to all the little dark corners where we try to hide. And so I ask specifically, Lord, that you would not let us hide, that you would know and be known by us. In your precious name, amen.